problem is most people overintellectualize markets. They're highly psychological. Investing is not like a, it is a mathematical financial thing, but it's ultimately, if you don't understand psychology, good luck. Like seriously, good luck. If you are an Empire listener, hopefully you've played around on chain. And if you have done that, you know that transferring assets across different chains is a pain, to put it nicely. That is why we are incredibly excited to have the Wormhole Foundation as a partner of the Empire podcast, stewards of the Wormhole protocol, supporting over 30 different blockchains and six different runtimes. Stay tuned later in the show. We have a cool thing that you can claim, which is a Wormhole NFT just for Empire listeners. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. Here at Empire, you know that Santi and I are really into real-world use cases and always on the lookout for the next killer blockchain app. We're excited to share that PayPal has arrived in crypto to unveil a way to seamlessly connect fiat to digital currencies. Later in the show, you will find out how you can use PYUSD to check out at millions of online stores. What's up, everyone? Happy Friday or Saturday or Sunday, whenever you're listening to this. We got uh, we got Santi and we got special guest, Mr. Matt Fieback from Blockworks Research. Santi, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great yeah. to be here. It's great to be here. <laughs> it's a glorious day to be here. Or as the, yeah, bad glorious kids, day. as the bad kids like to say, it is a bad morning. So um, what's going on? How you doing, Santi? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm excited because Matt, as I hear, as you describe him, he's the brains behind Blockworks Research. There has uh, been a lot of controversy on Twitter recently, a uh, particular project out there that reminds people of Terra. Uh, as always, crypto Twitter always has very informed, uninformed opinions um, and is uh, has a very visceral reaction to certain ideas uh, like Blast. So now Blast, people are, seems to be coming around to that project. Oh, oh, oh lo and behold. Oh. Uh, so anyways, I think, um, yeah, crypto is a very interesting ecosystem where it's very vocal. There's a lot of noise uh, uh, and people uh, tend to make up their minds very quickly on certain things yeah. and they have to revisit and chew glass a bit. But uh, thankfully, we have Matt here who has uh, more informed opinions than 99.999% of crypto Twitter. And so hopefully in this episode, we can get kind of like more into the weeds of like some of the mechanisms for uh, and the project we're talking about. Matt, you can fill us in here, but it's Athena, right? Yeah. And so people can, uh, obviously it's very topical. Um, so we could start there. There's a lot that we can discuss, but uh, we got really excited for the pop. Yeah. So I want to talk Athena Labs with Matt. I also want to talk, there's a little bit of drama with them. Um, so Ave's risk manager the last couple of years was Gauntlet and they announced that they're stopping work with Ave. You don't really see this that much. Um, it's, it's kind of like the analogy I would use would be like a consulting firm firing their client or a SaaS provider selling, firing their customer. Um, I'd love to get Matt's take on you this. You would go as far as saying the auditor stopping uh, uh, auditing a particular firm. I, don't, I didn't want to say that because that implies a certain underlying no. risk. It's but, not. Um, it's an unfair comparison. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, you almost, uh, well, it makes you wonder if it was Gauntlet that terminated the relationship or Ave they terminated that relationship. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get Matt's take on that. whole bunch of other stuff. AI coins are ripping. Santi, you had an interesting poll about uh, what's going to outperform. Is it NFTs? Is it whatever? Uh, and at the time, NFTs were the lowest uh, voted on thing. And I said, feels very obvious. I think NFTs will, will outperform the rest of the market and got a bunch of uh, funny comments in my DMs from that. So we, maybe we can talk about that. But before we do that, we are hosting um, an Empire listening party um, at DAS. We got Santi to, yeah, we got Santi to fly in for DAS. Um, got him to change his flight and he's coming. Uh, so so Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. 
the amount of over like nightmare <laughs> folks you better show up to this goddamn thing <laughs> yeah yeah if you're coming to das <laughs> here are the requirements if you're coming to das uh and you're an empire listener and how can we verify you're an empire listener you might ask we can't we can't it's a trust thing so you have to be an empire listener uh but we can't i don't know verify. about you man. i'm gonna be in the i'm gonna be in the fucking door <laughs> show me your spotify like 2023 top podcast if empire's yeah. not in one of those yeah exactly yeah show me your spotify rap baby so uh yeah so uh we but should we can verify that we should throw an easter egg in some of these episodes you know be like what is the code the code, yeah, exactly. The code is bald. You have to say bald at the door, <laughs> and uh, only Empire listeners will get it. So yeah, but we can verify that you have a DAS ticket. So go get your DAS ticket. Uh, we hit a big milestone today, which is we just sold our thousandth DAS ticket. We have a thousand tickets. Our ticket goal and registrant goal for DAS was twelve hundred. We are going to rip past that goal. It looks like um, I would guess we'll end up around fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred, which means the hotel or the, the Hilton where we're hosting it is going to shut us down from continuing to sell tickets. So we're going to, at some point soon, have to sh- uh, shut down ticket sales. Um, Actually, on- I, I, have a, I have a free ticket to give out. So maybe I'll do something special about that because I don't have anyone else to give it to. But hey, maybe this is a good opportunity to, uh, if you're listening out there, um, maybe the, the most creative comment on Farcaster will get a free ticket. Because I, as a speaker, right, I get a free ticket. Maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but I, I do. Uh, but anyways, maybe the sure. most creative comment on Farcaster will uh, get this ticket on me. Sure. I don't even know how, how you have a free ticket, but yeah, actually, that. <laughs> at one point you wanted to charge me. That's fine. Uh, sure. Whatever, whatever you say, Zondi. All right. So let's uh, let's. We get, may have to edit this up. <laughs> let's get into Athena Labs. Um, okay. So Athena Labs. Um, Here's the TLDR on Athena Labs. It is a, they, you know what? I'm not even going to try to do this. Matt, give us the TLDR of why everyone is talking about Athena Labs this week and what happened. You don't need to go into too many of the details on how it works. I'll kind of pull that stuff out of you. But what happened with Athena Labs? What was their fundraise? And like high level, what is Athena Labs? So Athena Labs has launched the newest stablecoin to the market, USDCE. Um, they've immediately hit their cap of 100 mil in TVL, so 100 mil USDC outstanding. It's a really interesting project, and it's offering something like 27% yield. So there's a you know narrative going around like, is this the new Terra Luna and things of that nature? Uh, so it's kind of caused this huge stir on Twitter. It is not the new Terra Luna. It's employing a pretty interesting strategy in order to actually get that yield back to its holders. Um, and it's a really cool team, and they're building something pretty awesome. Okay, so is it a stablecoin though? My understanding was they don't market themselves as a stablecoin. It's sort of a tokenized hedge fund that is playing like the, a basis trade. Yeah, so the way I look at it, it is a kind of a yield vault wrapped in a stablecoin narrative. So we've seen like yield vaults in the past have all kinds of strategies, including some actually deploy the same strategy that Athena is deploying. So that's like a delta neutral strategy where you hold a long position, you hold a short position so that you're not exposed to the price but maybe you're getting a, a carry or an interest rate from something like staking ETH or from being short perps, which has a negative funding or has positive funding rate, which returns yield to shorts. So Athena kind of looks very similar to those to those yield vaults of, of a past era, but wrapped in the stablecoin narrative where actually if you deposit into the vault, you receive this USDC e stablecoin um, collateralized by those positions. 
So there's two products here, right? There's USD, there's USDE, and then there's SUSDE is my understanding. So USDE, and maybe we can walk through both of those. So USDE is just the stable coin that's pegged to the US dollar, basically. It is a combination, the way they do that is a combination of uh, staked ETH and perps to maintain the peg. And then there's another product, which is SUSDE, the E being Athena, the S being staked. So SUSDE, that generates yield, kind of like a traditional bond. And I think a lot of their marketing was like, we enable the internet bond. My understanding is USDE is backed by basically, yeah, you've got staked ETH deposits and short perps positions. And then those two assets kind of work together to fully collateralize the value of USDE. And that kind of keeps the total value uh, stable. Is that, can you maybe give us a better explanation than I than I did stumbling over that, Matt? Yeah, sure. So maybe it would help to explain kind of the life cycle of how you get to SUSDE eventually. Sure. So it starts with market makers. Only whitelisted market makers are actually allowed to mint this USDE token. So what they do is they go and deposit a staked ETH asset, a LSD. So something like Lido staked ETH or Binance staked ETH, and they deposit into the protocol. Athena then goes and uh, you know holds this position on a centralized exchange like a Binance or an OKX. I believe they have five exchanges that they're currently using to hold their collateral. They actually have a custodian, Copper, who is holding the collateral that's not currently being used. But at the end of the day, it does end up on these exchanges. They use this staked ETH as collateral to then open a short position. So let's say, you know, you're a market maker, you put one ST ETH into Athena, you get, call it, let's say ETH $3,000, you get 3,000 USDE. At this point, Athena takes that one staked ETH, one ETH, and puts it into Binance. They then open a short one ETH position against that one ETH collateral. So now whether ETH goes up or down, it doesn't matter. You know, the price, there's no price exposure anymore. If it goes up, you know, the price of the, the short loses value, but the steeth gains value. Likewise, if it goes down, the short gains value, but the steeth loses value. So you're what's called delta neutral at this point. And uh, that's how, what's collateralizing that one USDE outstanding. Anyone who has USDE can then go stake it with the Athena protocol to not only get yield. So the, you know, the yield that's the result of both the staked ETH yield, which is 2.6% or something like that, as well as the yield from holding those short positions, because right now the funding rate in crypto is really high. So shorts get paid a lot to hold their positions open. Um, But additionally, you get shards, which is like Athena's version of points, uh, you know, with speculators thinking that they'll likely either be an Athena governance token airdrop or maybe even a USDC airdrop at some point. How scalable is this model? I mean, and can it work in all kinds of market conditions? Meaning your point is a good one, which is now you're getting paid a lot if you're going short. It's not like reverse this model or implement this model nine months ago. Can it work? Yeah, so that they have pretty good back t- back testing data on their website and it actually can work. But Athena already makes up 5% of total ETH open interest, which as that number scales, likely the funding rates will come down, meaning those short positions will get paid less yield from their funding rate. Funding rates will come down and the, t- the token will have less yield. Additionally, it's really only in a bull market that we see these egregious annualized funding rates where something like 20, 30, 40, even 60, mm-hmm. 70% is paid annualized by longs to hold their positions open. So the answer is it's a lot tougher to have this type of product in a bear market. And then additionally, even in a bull market as it scales, once it gets to, you know, in the billions, it likely uh, will no longer have that same type of return that it does today. So, okay. So the the yield right now is 27 or so. People are like, okay, that's, they don't know where the yield's coming from. You are the yield. Um, so that goes down. Is there a point 
where the yield goes reaches a certain point where it no longer is interesting, attractive to people. And I guess then that mechanism sort of people leave and then the, there's sort of like a natural equilibrium where the yield kind of settles. Um, and do you have a sense of where that could be? Is it 6%? Is it 8 Is it staking plus? So there's, there's, there's a few things to keep in mind there, which is one, there's a risk that, you know, the staked assets depeg. So Steeth isn't actually completely pegged to ETH. There's also risk in the exchange, in the custody, in the custodian, so in copper, and there's also risk in the exchanges. So, you know, you have to price these risks in from my perspective and, you know, the way I look at it, maybe like something like five, six percent. So it's definitely not zero. There is risk in this pro- in using this protocol, but the yield is, you know, very promising. Um, another aspect of the yield is from the inefficiency in the funding rate market. So funding rates aren't equal across all exchanges today. That's likely because not all, you know, uh, high value market makers are plugged in across all different exchanges. So Athena will actually help these funding rates become more efficient across different exchanges. Um, additionally, the yield is actually far above 27% right now because only half of the USDCE is actually staked. So it's almost double that. Um, it's worth noting that's like a, that's annualized based on the last week's data and funding rates change every hour. So, you know, it could, it could be drastically different than that in reality. Um, I would say if the funding rates came down or sorry, if the interest on, you know, SUSDE came down below 10%, it now starts to become like, is this really a positive EV? Is this really a good expected value versus the risks that are involved? Um, but whether or not the market really cares about that or just cares about getting these points, it's uh, that's definitely up for debate. Matt, can you explain um, just funding rates again for people who don't know what they are and like just what what are funding rates in crypto? Yeah, so perps are perpetual futures are you know a novel instrument in crypto. It's really only predominantly for crypto assets that this type of derivative trades. If there is a uh, aggregate long bias amongst traders looking for leverage, so if more traders out there want long leverage than short leverage, longs have to pay shorts in order to hold their longs open. Likewise, if there's more interest, if there's more volume looking to short an asset than long an asset, shorts have to pay longs. And the funding rates paid in an hourly cadence. So when you look at Athena and they say, you know, over the last week, the average funding rate has been 27% 27% annualized in our favor. Really what that means is taking every hour over the last seven days and then annualizing it over 365 days. That's, you know, 27% uh, longs are paying shorts to hold those longs open. Okay. So funding rates are the fee that perps traders need to pay based on the kind of sentiment to the market. If more traders are bullish and are, are long, they're paying the short traders a fee um, and, and obviously vice versa. So in this current environment, ETH, um, the other thing that happened this week, ETH hit 3K or touched up on it. Um, so traders are very bullish ETH, which means the funding rate is positive, which means that the long perps holders are paying the short short holders here. And right now, the um, the rate, the, what's the funding rate? Like 20% or 23% or something? It's that- different across exchanges. Like on Binance, it's about 11%. So longs are paying shorts about 11% annualized. But if you go look at an exchange like DYDX, it's closer to 80% or Vertex or you know some of these okay. DEXs. So when I see on Athena that I'm getting, you know, this 27% number, that's basically you've got a 4% yield coming from staking yield, which is like the consensus rewards, the execution level fees, and the MEV block builder bids. And that's 4%. Then there's another 23% coming from the funding rate. And is it right to say that Athena gets that gets that 23% because the longs are paying Athena due to Athena's short positions? Correct. Okay. 
Got it. What happens if sentiment shifts bearish? Like I think Santi was asking about nine months ago. So if let's say, so this, I, I have a feeling Athena is going to rip um, and, you know, next 18 months, Athena does super well. But then one day sentiment changes, we go into a bear market, uh, funding rates flip. What what happens to to this at this point? So we actually have a report on BlockWorks Research where we do a lot of backtesting of different perps over the bear market and the funding rates to do with those perps. I believe it's called basis basis trading. If you search up BlockWorks Research basis trading, it'll pop up. Historically, even in bear markets, funding rates do trend positive. Yeah. And so likely, you mm-hmm. know, if, if Athena didn't have a billion dollars, um, it would still be a profitable strategy. But likely they they may think that the caps that are they're able to deploy during a bull market meaning you know right now this the strategy is highly scalable so if it grows too big in a bear market it could have a a large implication that you know maybe funding rates would be negative in the bear market um and all of a sudden now athena is actually losing money to hold these positions open that, that's where i want to explore because so yeah. so funding rates to your point are not um homogeneous, like standardized across exchanges or decentralized per- protocols like Vertex and others. Um, so they're quite different in the, in the way they're calculated, which is not so much of an issue. I think now you're going to have a, a pretty big buyer, constant buyer of these things in the market, which is going to be this project. Um, what's the worst that can happen in your mind? Is it that the, the centralized exchange risk is real? Um, the counterparty risk somehow like that part of the equation breaks down or is it um, like I'm less concerned about the model becoming like less attractive because in a world where people, for instance, if yield comes down to 7% to a point where people just feel that it doesn't compensate for the risks out there, what you will see is like demand go down and then naturally yields would go up. Presumably, right? I mean, there's sort of a there will be a clearing rate. The market sort of will figure that out. But the issue, for instance, with Terra was you had what was marketed as a stable coin that um, you know was you know the way I think of it is a lot of people came into the house. They wanted to play in this yield and capture, do a lot of this arb and anchor or whatever. The size of the door didn't grow. So the minute some people started to want to exit and it happened all at once, the way these things typically do in the bank run type of situation, that's where you have the issue where people can't get out, people can't redeem, and then it depegs and then it has a downward spiral. That is not the case here, right? Like, Yeah, correct. I, I think, you know, there is... There is some negative encumbrance as far as, you know, winding down positions incurs fees. So, you know, everyone leaving at once does mean it's not positive for the protocol, but it's not like this huge lack of liquidity or this huge event that absolutely destroys the protocol. So you ask like where I see the largest risk, it's not in funding rate switching. Like, yes, that's a risk. But like you said, I think that the market hopefully will be somewhat efficient there. Um, the big risk is in counterparty risk. So they're holding a lot of funds on exchanges. Like, you know, it's diversified across five exchanges, but mm-hmm. likely if the funding rate on one of those goes super positive, meaning it's really profitable to hold a short open there, they'll put more funds there. Um, as we've seen in crypto over and over again, even the most trustworthy exchanges do have risk. Like there's no there's no other way to to look at it besides there is risk in holding money on, on centralized exchanges. Likely in the future, they'll also hold money on decentralized exchanges given that, you know, the funding rates there are even more 
uh, promising and fruitful. So definitely from my perspective, that's where the largest risks are involved. Using copper as a custodian does help, but it doesn't completely alleviate that risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so that's where I would see the bit, biggest potential concern as a, as a holder of USDCE. When they try to implement this strategy, you mentioned there is a scenario where they lose a pretty significant amount of money if they don't do this efficiently. Um, is that a function of as they scale, it becomes harder and harder to implement the strategy? And so, um, and other people are actually seeing what they're doing so they can, you know, and so would it, um, can you walk us through kind of the scenario where it starts becoming unprofitable because there's a huge fluctuation in, you know, the funding rates or whatever, or they need to unwind these positions fairly quickly. So they kind of exit in a very unorderly manner. Like the protocol there would incur some bad debt. Are, are like the users also going to kind of like participate in that downside or is that going to come from an insurance type of fund? I'm curious how that would work. So I, I literally heard today that they are increasing the insurance fund take rate. So there is an insurance fund take rate. It's extremely small right now. But given that the yield might be as high as 40% this week for SUSDCE, uh, annualized that is, they're deciding, they've decided that I think 50% of the total yield will actually go bootstrap an insurance fund, which I think is an extremely smart and important decision because it is very much possible that that is a scenario that could occur. You know, funding rates flip against them and they need to unwind the positions. It's not like all of a sudden there's a huge hole in their balance sheet, but it does mean there's a, uh, you know, there's a scenario where not every USDC is completely backed by $1. So bootstrapping the insurance fund is awesome. And given that it, the rates are so high right now, likely they can get it to a very healthy position where that risk is mostly mitigated. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that it's a good decision and there is an insurance fund that will help take on some of the risk. Where there's one thing that comes to mind is because mm-hmm. funding rates change hourly, even if a funding rate flips against them for one hour, meaning they have an open short and the funding rate goes negative, so they have to pay to hold that position open, it might not make sense to close the position because closing the position incurs costs. So you're putting a lot of trust in them as kind of a hedge fund manager type position that they know what they're doing and they've backtested and that they know when to close positions and when to leave them open. So there is definitely that component to it as well. Like what are their skills as a trader? Yeah, this is... um. So, so they have a decision to make here, Matt. Right? With, like, there's there's someone at Athena who basically says, "Look, the max that they that we can offer is the ETH staking yield. It's called four percent plus the funding rate. Let's call it going to make twenty three percent. So we can offer a max of twenty seven, and then there's basically a delta that they could that they could move into the insurance fund. So they could basically say, we're going to move 12% of that into the insurance fund, start building up the insurance fund because they think that offering 15% to the market is still good enough to pull user assets. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the main risks here are funding rates moving against them. But like, but like you said, it's really like custodial and exchange risk. It's, it's, you know, basically a big sex blows up. Yeah. And then would add in one other risk in poor execution. And what do you think of like as liquid liquid restaking tokens start to kind of take off? Like Athena wants to juice yield a little more. Like they start to play with liquid restaking tokens as collateral. They start they, that means they can like juice the yield. Maybe an LR like maybe a, a liquid restaking token gets slashed. Like what's the um what's the risk there? Is like is that is that a risk in your mind? 
Yeah, I think adding restaking tokens into the mix definitely increases the risk of the protocol and likely given that it's extremely or seemingly extremely profitable to be deploying these delta neutral trades or these market neutral trades today. I don't see a reason that they would want to go that route besides maybe catching the eigenlayer AVS narrative. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't think it really. The only makes reason sense they would go that way is if they just start to get greedy. Like that's a what I that's just a greedy. Yeah, trade it would be a total detraction from the strategy. Like, who is yeah. controlling the risk framework and parameters? Is as a token holder, like, do you have a say in in governance and in kind of that process, or you're just trusting the team uh, to be sophisticated and savvy enough to implement the strategy? Yeah, today you're basically putting money into a hedge fund. It's kind of a it's one a way of look- hedge fund. Yeah, it's a tokenized hedge fund. It's not it's a, a stable. <laughs> it's a yield vault wrapped in a stable coin and points narrative. It's like kind of urine finance 2.0. Yep. Hmm. How big? I feel like the worst part about Athena was just the marketing as a stable coin. Yeah, yeah it should never have been marketed as a stable coin. But everything else, like this, this all makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a really, really cool experiment. Um, I'm glad that someone's doing it, and there is definitely inefficiencies in the funding rate market. Can we talk about like others have tried to do this before? Right? Yeah, Lama, one and, and there's another project, I believe. Who was one it? Who'd you mention? Shao actually had a good tweet about this. I think it's Lemma and uh, someone else. They have been attempts to do this in a tokenized manner. Like, uh, like certain projects have done it, and I'm not as familiar, but um, I, I was wondering, Matt, if you had more insight into that. Yeah, one actually comes to mind. It's a it was a project on Solana that uh, you know ceased to exist. It, I don't know what went wrong, but it was called Friction. So they had a token vault that oh, uh, that was I wanted to in them. I was an investor yeah. too. Yeah, it was really cool, really cool. Yeah. But you know, deep in a bear market, without the points narrative, without the stablecoin narrative, it didn't work. I forget the exact strategy, but it was something like longing soul staking it, so getting some eight percent or something like that per year from that position. And then shorting it on, I want to say Mango Finance or one of the other perp stacks is over on Solana. And so very similar, but it didn't have that idea of you didn't receive a stable coin in return. Um, and there were no points at the time. So it, you know, didn't really see a whole lot of, attra- it didn't see a whole lot of interest from the market, at least not even in a slightly comparable to Athena manner. Can we talk about the, so so the added element here is that you receive out this stable instrument and then you has, has some utility that you can then go use in other parts of the ecosystem. And DeFi, like the composability element of that, right? It's a big, it's a big added feature. Is what you're saying? Yeah. So there isn't really a whole lot you can do with it yet, but you would imagine that as USD, it's a brand new product. As it gets more uh, integrations and you're able to yeah. do it more with it, there is that added element that actually does have some value. Right. Yeah, because maybe you can use it for other things, right? You can go then and deposit, get get back this. What is it? Uh, Stablecoin ish product and then go use that to long and basically rinse repeat right over yeah. and over and over sounds like what uh very well could end up happening yeah that would add a bit more yeah i guess, I guess on the user side would add more could well does it i mean how is that any different i'm trying to think of like if you're a user and you you do this in a scenario where you can like take it out and then like rinse repeat over and over to use juice more yield in the same way people are doing that with compound right and just farming it right you're depositing usdc borrowing die like doing that loop over and over again right uh, yeah see the same thing 
same, see the same thing with Steeth, very predominant trade. I guess in this yeah. scenario, the way it would look would be you deposit as market maker, you deposit Steeth into Athena, you get USDC, you borrow Steeth against it, and you'd continue looping it to try mm-hmm. to uh, juice your yield. It, I don't actually, I think today, like a lot of the interest in Athena is likely these shards, which is their version of points. Um, so people, you know, attempting to get an airdrop of some sort, whether it be an Athena governance token or USDC or some combination of the two. And, you know, we're just at that point in the market where that's something that it seems everyone is interested in and wanting. Hmm. Are you doing it? I'm actually not in Athena right now, but I probably should be. I've just been extremely hmm. busy, so I haven't, haven't had time, but I will, definitely would be, yeah. You would, you, okay. And this is not, so the, So this now that I understand it better, this is nothing to do with Luna. Like Luna do, blew up because this reflexive design, Luna got minted, sold to zero to protect the UST peg. Um, and the anchor yield was subsidized at 20%, was never really sustainable. Uh, it, it's it, it's a totally different thing. I saw a lot of comparisons on Twitter, but it's com- they're completely different things now, now that I understand it better. Yeah, there's no comparing them. Yeah. Um, then there's this other interesting thing, Matt, that we were talking about um in the in the in the telegram chat with the Athena guys and with Guy about um their go to market strategy and like the the uh Athena the way I understand it is Athena is going to be providing L2s uh with the ability to essentially offer yield into L2s which the reason I bring this up is Santi and I have been talking about this a lot the last couple of months I know Santi was an investor in Blast I, and one of the my predictions of the year was like Every L2 is going to eventually offer yield, like native yield inside of inside of the L2. And it looks like um, I think their head of growth posted something that they're now offering yield to. I think it's Movement Labs. I'll pull this up. Uh, Mode Network, which is on built on OP Stack, Parallel Fi, which I don't know, but they're an omni-chain L2, and Movement Labs, who Santi and I are both investors in. And um, yeah, they said. Uh, here are the L2s that have announced integration of Athena Labs as native yield. There's five more coming that should drive another half a billion in TVL at least. L2s are the new yield consumers. So what do you, Santi, what do you think of this? About what specifically? Just about um, basically all of these L2s are now going to use Athena as the, to, 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 to offer the yield. I, again, I don't, I mean, it's market will do its thing. I'm, I'm less so yeah. as, as you were saying this, I was reading Tom Schmidt uh, from Dragonfly, and I believe they're investors in Athena, um, along with um, Arthur's family office, Maelstrom, I think. Yeah. Um, he has a really good tweet uh, about just criticism and then response, and I, I would love to just link that to the episode. Um, one hmm. of the things that I want to go back to on this, like, we're talking about funding rates. And the risk is, quote, quote, USDE is uh, screwed when funding rate goes negative. And he says, which is, I want to call this out because I think it's important. Funding has only been net negative 10.8% over the past three years and only for a very small periods of time. Um, so eff- effective to a few basis points per day, uh, which is an interesting stat, actually. Um, and so he says this is mitigated by the insurance fund, which also accrues buffer during periods of positive funding. Um, and the way you can further mitigate this is potential risk launching via the governance token or staking the future. Um, this problem is also self-correcting as shorts close out versus self-reinforcing. So I think the interesting thing here is like funding rates, like Athena is not the only player in these markets. And so, yeah, exactly. This, this is what you can talk about. 
And like, there are a fair amount of people that are going to try to arb this out and correct itself, right? So I think that's the most important element yeah. here of how this mechanism works because they're they're not the only player. They'll be a very big one in funding markets. Um, but um, yeah, if things get out of whack with one particular exchange, whether it's centralized or decentralized, these things tend to even out because there's a huge arb. Say one exchange, like the funding rate shoots up then that like naturally gets arbed out and like it, it sort of yeah. like settles. So this, this is a great thread. I mean, I, I won't go into all of it, but we should link it because it's important for people to just read it and, and digest it. Yeah. We can read a couple of these. I mean, Tom said it's, you know, people are upset. Oh, the first, basically the way Tom lay, lays this out is like, people are upset about this and then his counter. So the first one's it's not a stable coin. He goes, yeah, it's not marketed as one. You can't guarantee 27%. It's a Ponzi. Tom says it's not guaranteed. 27% is just the current market rate. USDE is when ETH tanks. It's delta neutral. Language. <laughs> Maybe Joseph can like bleep that out. You know, uh, yeah, we're very liberal with language. We're not woke podcast. I actually think Spotify dings us if we swear too much. So. Does it really? Yeah. yeah. So anyways, we'll, we'll link it. No, there's, no, uh, there's a lot of swear words in this uh, thread, Tom. So uh, yeah. yeah, Tom, keep it. Keep it I'm actually speaking at a pen. If anyone's going to be there, I'm speaking at pen blockchain conference or UPenn something or another tomorrow with Tom on a panel. So I've been to that conference. It's actually pretty, pretty nice. Yeah. yeah so, um, Matt, what are we missing here? Anything else on Athena we should talk about? No, I think that people who are buying into it just need to realize like what they're, what they're, you know, what, what's collateralizing their position, what the risks are, but it's a really cool experiment and I'm excited to see it grow. Nice. Like we've been skewing negative, just being critical of it. What's the added benefit? What's the the positive scenario here? It works beautifully. It scales a lot. People are earning some nice juicy yield on it. Other than financial engineering and capturing some nice yield, like what um what else? I guess like a nice experiment uh in terms of, you know, capturing yield for people. Yeah, I think it's cool. Most people don't have the ability to go and automate a delta neutral trading strategy. So giving, you know, open access to this type of investment or this type of strategy is really pretty cool. Yeah, agreed. All right. Shout out to them. Look, I met met them uh, last year. I spoke with the team a number of times and I didn't end up investing. But um, nonetheless, I do appreciate the novelty of the mechanism and I I hope it works and I hope it doesn't fail. Do you regret not investing? I, I did not invest, no. Do you regret not investing? No. No. Cool. Matt, will there be a token? I mean, Everyone's speculating, <laughs> yes. Like, you know, at the end of the day, Ansem was in their round. I A lot of the people in the round, I don't think, would be investing if there wasn't a token. <laughs> but I've also heard rumors the airdrop is going to be USDC. Um, I have no idea. Nothing, nothing that's uh, actually believable. But oh yeah, God. who knows? <laughs> The the new metas it was last cycles was Kobe in your round. Now this was Ansem in your round. Um, all right, let's talk. Uh, let's talk Gauntlet leaving Ave. Matt, uh, for those who don't know, Matt leads a lot of our governance work. A post by um, John Morrow, one of the co-founders of Gauntlet. Uh, Gauntlet is leaving Ave. It's always been Gauntlet's mission to make DeFi safer and more efficient for users, et cetera, et cetera. I won't read all of this, um, but the TLDR is that. Gauntlet has served as the kind of risk manager for Ave for the last four years. Um, 
And now Gauntlet has announced that they are no longer, they said, quote, no longer able to continue our work with Aave. We will be terminating our payment stream as soon as possible and working with other contributors to find a replacement for the risk steward. Um, and uh, yeah, there's some reasons that they laid out, but then they said, thanks. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear Matt, your take on like, again, uh, the analogy I brought up at the beginning was like, it's a bit odd for this to happen. It's like someone hiring, you know, it's like JP Morgan hires Deloitte and then, or like BCG or something. And then BCG fires JP Morgan, right? Usually you have the client fires the service provider. In this case, you have the service provider firing the client. Uh, it's, it's kind of a bizarre thing. Uh, Matt, I'd love to hear like both what's the drama and the speculation around this. And then like, what is the, maybe your more uh, sober thoughts around this? Sure. So uh, Gauntlet was one of the first companies, maybe the first company that ever really went and operated in Dallas that tried to become a Dallas service provider. I think their compound proposal might have actually been the first, first of its kind. So as far as a company who has experience operating in Dallas, Gauntlet's kind of the best example that I can think of. Um, they operated more than a few DAOs and they've been doing it for a very long time. When you're selling into a DAO, it's a you know, it's a tough customer. It's hundreds of people with diverse backgrounds, with different intentions for what the future of the protocol looks like. And it's impossible to please everyone. My speculation would be that a loud voice, like maybe even a single loud voice in the DAO was able to make their life as far as operating within Aave so difficult that it just wasn't worth the headache to them. Um, you know, this is speculation, but, uh, for reference, like that one of the biggest delegates, ACI, Ave Chan Initiative, voted it was one of the few votes against their proposal, their last proposal to continue their work with Ave. Um, there's a lot of so, of course, like Ave had this big event with CRV Curves Token where uh, they basically took on way too much risk. We're willing to take on way too much, too many CRV deposits. So it seems that a lot of people might even blame Gauntlet for that, given that they're the risk manager. But uh, looking at it from a from an unbiased perspective, Gauntlet actually went and created proposals multiple times to decrease and to wind down the amount of CRV that Ave was willing to accept, and it was turned down by the DAO. So it's hard to fault them for that situation uh, from a, a unbiased perspective. But I guess there probably was still some negative sentiment about it within some of these larger stakeholders in the DAO. Uh, end of the day, you know, operating in DAOs is uh, it's. People in crypto, like we say, we love pain, like we love to cause ourselves pain. And like, you know, those of us that like to go and be active in DAOs are kind of a prime example of that, I think. Um, are you familiar with Chaos Labs? Yeah, of course. They also, and look, full disclosure, I'm an investor there. Um, but they also became involved um, over a year ago, I think, um, and are also managing create a dashboard and they also do risk management in a more automated manner, sort of like simulations. Gauntlet, I would describe more as like a consulting firm, like very, very math heavy, of course, like gigabrain guys, but they, they're more like um, bespoke in the way they work, right? They go in, they, they make proposals. It's very, you know, human centric, whereas chaos tries to sell more out of the box kind of solutions where it's like constant simulation and uh, ongoing monitoring. But is there something to read here in terms of Gavi's going to continue to use chaos? The gauntlet just sort of decide that it was, you know, it's just probably better for them to go out and pursue other things and spend more of their resources in other projects for, uh, given the chaos is like, you know, 
working with Ave closely? It's an interesting perspective. Um, I would guess that, you know, from some participants in the Dallas perspective, that is the case. You know, we think chaos has been doing better work, so let's only work with chaos. But I do know a few, a lot of the Ave delegates believe that having two risk firms was better than having one. So I think at the end of the, I do actually think that this was Gauntlet's decision to leave rather than, you know, Ave firing them um, as seen. I think they passed the proposal in maybe mm-hmm. December or end of last year where they were actually, uh, you know, furthering their engagement with Ave. So yeah, like to some extent, did chaos come in and kind of eat their lunch? Like maybe that is the case, but also I think that probably one loud voice in the Dow, um, potentially the one you have pulled up right now, kind of just made their operations in Ave such a headache that it wasn't, you know, so, worth, worth now, their now time. What's the, what's the call? I mean, I'm like, we're avoiding the elephant in the room here, but like, why, why is everyone on Twitter being like Mark Zeller, Mark Zeller? Like what's the, so I saw, I saw yeah, yeah, before, before we go there, sorry to, I saw a great meme, which is like gauntlets bill to Ave consulting hundred <laughs> K, uh, you know, at a budget expenses, 10 K, uh, dealing with Mark Zeller, 10 million. This. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so like uh, Mark Zeller runs an initiative called Ave Chan Initiative. They're one of the biggest Ave delegates. I think they have all, close to 50% of like the average vote on most proposals in that DAO. So a ton of power. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it is a decentralized protocol. It's not like whatever Ave Chan wants gets happens. But when there's a single actor with so much power in a DAO, it definitely becomes important that you're able to work with them efficiently and effectively. So if there's any animosity there, it's probably going to be a non-starter for your uh, future success and ability to have a you know happy working life while working with your partner that is this protocol. What do you if think? If you were it's not like you as an observer and seeing all of this unfold, like what are, would you have done anything differently if you were in either Gauntlet or Ave's position Second, what are your kind of main takeaways for governance in general, management of DAOs, and submitting proposals? I think from the Gauntlet and Ave perspective, like if I'm there, there probably wouldn't be anything that I did differently. Um, it's difficult. If I was Gauntlet, maybe I would have tried to pursue through it. And like, you know, if I decide Ave is this important part of DeFi infrastructure that is that is critical to the future success of our space. Maybe I'll try to push through it and continue to like assert myself and f- let it blow over in the long term. But other than that, like I do think Gauntlet has been doing a pretty good job as far as being a risk manager there. Being Ave, uh, you know, it seems that some of the actors that wanted Gauntlet gone got what they wanted. So it, it's hard to speak on behalf of everyone. Others, for instance, I know are sad they're leaving. Um, and then as far as governance in general, it's tough. Like governance is broken, but it starts with a to- the token holder. So like the reason governance is broken isn't because of delegates. It's because of the token holder. You know, they go and delegate, first of all, only like small portions of the actual circulating supply go in and delegate their tokens for Ave. I think it's one of the highest at like 8%. Don't quote me on that, but under 10%. Um, and then once they delegate, they just forget about it. So it's not like they're holding their delegates accountable so if they disagree with the decision that's being made, they go and talk to them. Like that doesn't actually happen in crypto at all. So the problem kind of starts at the token holder level, like between, you know, delegating and forgetting, and then also between vote and voter apathy. So people who just hold tokens and then don't vote at all, then 
like you go a level further and there's problems at the delegate level of uh, misaligned incentives as far as, you know, like Ave Chan gets paid, I don't know, a million dollars a year or something like that for this position. I'm not actually negatively commenting on that at all, but you know, there's incentives to ingrain yourself in these DAOs in a way where you continue to have your own incentive rather than just act in the best interest of the protocol. So like, how do you make that a more fair and efficient process? Like how do you have delegates get paid at the end of the day? It's almost a full-time job, so they should be getting paid. Um, so yeah, across the board. And then you also have this third issue of sophisticated actors and entities don't really care about governance or want to participate in governance. So you look at other aspects of crypto like MEV, ZK, and you have some of these smartest people in the world who are dedicating all of their time to studying these issues. And then you look at this predominant issue we have that no one cares about or wants to pay attention to. So I guess I would say those are like the three layers that I think about most when I'm thinking about the problems of DAO governance. Maybe, maybe we should create points for governance and delegates and reward uh like okay, certain certain teams have been like airdropping. If you voted, if you've submitted a proposal in these DAOs, like I think it's a one of the more uh, underappreciated uh, like inputs or things that people are doing in crypto. Like there are some very like Monet Supply comes to mind. Like he was just instrumental in, in maker governance, and he didn't have as much MKR. He was constant, but he was super engaged, super active, like on top of it, and just didn't get enough recognition. I think um, someone like that should probably be more empowered. Unfortunately, DAOs are economic DAOs, right? It's based on token weight, and so for the most part, and it, it's hard, right? When you want to pass these proposals, I constantly get pinged that, hey, you know, we need to pass so and so for these DeFi protocols. Do you have tokens, or can you help us? Like, no one's really voting, and a lot of ECs are not even voting and may, maybe they're not delegating. And so it's just a uh, difficult, uh, it's difficult to do governance, not just in crypto and crypto is just kind of figuring that out. <laughs> Matt, how, what is it? Like, what does this um, make you think about like Blockworks's efforts in governance? Um, and if you overshare, we can take, take this out or something, but like, would love to, would love to hear your candid thoughts about like, the impact that this has on like your your strategy with with David and uh, at for Blockworks like governance side of things. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any like fooling ourselves. Operating in governance in DAOs is hard. Um, it's a headache. It can be extremely difficult customer to work with. Things can change, you know, drastically. The things that are expected. One thing is like you know you create a proposal. There's um, you know, KPIs involved and all of a sudden you want to be working on something different, but you pass the proposal. There's a lot of difficulties of operating in a DAO, but at the end of the day, I think that for crypto to succeed, we need governance to work. Um, if you're invested in crypto, to, if you're a protocol founder, you need governance to work while your tokens vest. Like otherwise you're, you know, shit out of luck when it comes to your tokens vesting and all of a sudden this decentralized community has absolutely wrecked your token price and protocol. So despite it being hard, despite it being, you know, frankly, a sometimes even painful. I think it's necessary that Blockworks operate in DAOs uh, if we want our space to succeed. I think it's necessary that other sophisticated actors, service providers, entities have the same outlook because at the end of the day, that is how we're going to make governance operate more efficiently and effectively and and create protocols that uh, are able to truly be decentralized and and operate um, you know, with some merit over long periods. Yeah. It's funny the lobbying that happens behind the scenes. I got a call yesterday from someone who's applying for um, the Arbitrum 
we're applying for the Arbitrum research thing. They're applying for the Arbitrum security thing. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's a surprising amount of lobbying, I think, that happens behind the scenes that people don't see right now. Uh, basically lobbying for votes. Um, cool. Anything else on this, Matt? Yeah, I would just say, you know, on the lobbying front, it looks like traditional politics, you know, someone hiring their cousin or their nephew or whatever it's for a position, like lobbying behind closed doors, all that. It's it's not a new problem. It's, you know, it looks yeah. very similar to to the government of different uh, municipalities. And hopefully we can do a better job in the future. Do you think there's a lobbying firm that could get created in crypto, Matt, that would be successful? 100%. Not even a question. Yeah, yeah I think I, I've been thinking about that too. I think if there's a founder interested in governance and lobbying and knows how that game works, or even if you don't know how that game works, like I think that's a your ambitious founder, like you want to get into crypto. I think that's a good company to go start. Um, yeah, you could even go a level further. Like there aren't a whole lot of companies who are DAO service providers who are trying to operate in this industry. Like no matter what you're starting, if you are you know targeting DAOs as your customer. You might have to face some pain, but it is a largely underserved area of crypto. Hey, everyone. Wanted to give a big shout out to today's sponsor, Wormhole Foundation, stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. If you are like Santi and I and you play around on chain, you know how bad the cross-chain experience is today. Well, Wormhole has set out to solve that, powering cross-chain transfers for over 200 different multi-chain teams, including some of the best like Uniswap and Circle. So what does that mean for you, the Empire listener? This opens up a huge number of multi-chain use cases across DeFi, NFTs, governance, oracles, and more. By supporting over 30 different blockchains and six different runtimes, including SUI, Solana, different ETH L2s, Ethereum, and a whole bunch more. That means you have now the most powerful interoperability platform at your fingertips. If you're a developer, you'll be excited to hear that Wormhole provides an extensive suite of tools and infrastructure so that you can securely build multi-chain applications. But don't just take our word for it, obviously. Wormhole Protocol leads the industry in all-time messages transferred with over 900 million cross-chain messages. 900 million, that is close to a billion, and that's a big number of messages. As a thank you, Wormhole Foundation is dropping exclusive NFTs. That's right. We got some exclusive NFTs for Empire listeners. Hit the link in the description to claim your unique Wormhole NFT today. The days of not using crypto for really anything in the real world are over. It is time to start using crypto in everyday transactions, whether that's shopping online or just buying a bagel on the street. We're excited to tell you about PYUSD, PayPal's entrance into Web3. PayPal is proud to share an open letter to the crypto community that outlines their commitment, their roadmap, and their goals in the digital currency space. PYUSD seeks to transform how you interact with your digital assets. Available today, you can send your crypto to your PayPal account, swap it for PYUSD, and then use it to check out at millions of stores. PayPal invites you, all the Empire listeners, to be a part of this journey. Hit the link in the description of today's episode to read PayPal's open letter to the community. It gives you a really good sense of what their vision is. Take the next step by signing up for a PayPal account today. The future of crypto payments starts with PayPal. Santi, my good man, you tweeted something. You said, assume you're bullish. Here, I'll share the, share the screen for anyone watching on, on the tube. Um, you said, assume you are bullish ecosystem X. What outperforms? Uh, 
it was uh, L1 token, like ETH or Solana or, you know, AVAX or whatever it is, uh, SUI, whatever you want to say, the underlying token. Then there's NFTs. So if it's like, if you think ETH does your bullish ETH, you then like Pudgies will outperform or your bullish Solana, Mad Lads will outperform or apps, right? If you're bullish Solana, maybe Jupiter outperforms or if you're bullish ETH, maybe Uniswap outperforms and then there's C results. So uh, the... 33.6% of voters said L1 token, 29% said NFTs, and 22% said apps. And actually, at the time when I voted for this, apps were higher than NFTs, um, and NFTs were in last place. What are your thoughts? I'd love to – I can't see your vote here. Um, what do you think? What Like, what's your vote? And I don't know if there are any comments on this post that made you change how you think about things, but would love to get your take. Oh, definitely the comments changed my mind. <laughs> I'm – Take, uh, I hear a grain of sarcasm in that. <laughs> uh, it, uh, I generally think that if you're bullish in the ecosystem, I've historically done a levered bet through a combination of that. I don't think it's like one or the other, but um, strictly outperforming historically, I think it's been like highly reflexive. Like NFTs have the highest beta. Second to that are apps. And then it's also a difficult exercise because it's you have to get timing right the farther out you go on the risk spectrum for nfts right. you have to get the timing right um uh and for apps as well like DeFi, for instance if you look at like DeFi summer vastly outperformed ethereum but if you compare DeFi tokens relative to eth they've been on a downward spiral and haven't really recovered right and so you know it it um it depends on the timing and i guess you're your conviction and your ability to time these things uh, and uh, and how you're implementing the strategy. Like NFTs, I've barred against my base stack. So I had a bunch of ETH, would barred a, a decent amount to buy, you know, punks and other collections. And then with an intention to rotate at some point. And like, you know, uh, in retrospect, like that strategy, I wouldn't recommend it. To people like it, it has like NFTs are not only liquid instruments, right? But you know, um, also when when the price of the like when ETH ran from twenty five to four thousand, some of these collections actually don't hold their floor relative to the base asset. So that's also puts you at liquidation risk. Um, but um, yeah, like the more obvious one, I've privately kind of talked to you about this. Like I had this idea of like I really like the Solana is an ecosystem. I think the NFT ecosystem there is going to have a a pretty meaningful like growth. There's wealth effect because of airdrops. How do you get exposure to that? Well, Mad Lads uh, is the number one collection. That has run up quite substantially. Uh, it's now 20K. Uh, Tensorians is one also, which is, uh, you know, double kind of whammy. Not only is it, you know, a nice collection, top three, I think, but also you there's a uh, speculation around the airdrop and it's a good like you know marketplace so you also have exposure to the nft like trading um mm-hmm. a- the question is like does it outperform soul probably most likely i mean madlads has outperformed soul right the the the, the floor of madlads on a soul price you thinking of it in soul basis has gone up quite substantially right uh there we go yeah. Discount so no, November they were worth two thousand dollars. Now they're worth twenty thousand dollars. So they've gone up ten x. Ten x, right? Since November. Yeah. So 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think just to round it out, it's also, I've had a lot of conversations. I actually would love to get your opinions on this, both of yours. Like, will infrastructure continue to outperform or will applications like actually like outperform this time uh, as we get more usage? Depends on the chain, depends also on the project, right? But, you know, um, yeah, it's, 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 long-winded answer no no it's a good answer how how i'm doing it now it also depends as as the portfolio grows like i was having a discussion with someone uh that i kind of really respect and consult with and we're also of the mind that like it depends like if your portfolio is as it grows like maybe the proportion of like base token that you want to hold is different right than if at various portfolio sizes it also kind of factors into how you want to approach this type of strategy well there's another element to this too which is this like idea of these these tier one nft communities getting airdropped tokens in this cycle which has never existed that's very true very true yeah great so um like pudgies what's a what's a pudgy worth right now third 60k 60k usd like do you think that you yeah there you go i'm gonna share this tab instead here's the price of here's the price of pudgies yeah so a pudgy is about 60 60 K it's 19 and a half ETH. It was like four ETH in December or something. Three yeah. ETH. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, th- so 60 K is crazy, crazy to buy for an NFT. Obviously it's very expensive amount of money for a JPEG, but do you think that you will get airdropped more than 60 K worth of value for a pudgy in this entire cycle? Pro- probably. Right. There were people. I had two calls with teams that are thinking about airdrops and they're thinking pudgies came up for sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there there are people at Blockworks who made you know, 50, 50 plus K from the pudgy, the dim pudgy's airdrop alone, right? Um, and that that basically buys your pudgy right there. So, Matt, I'd love to get your take on all this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're going to get sixty K out of your out of your penguin, but you'll definitely get a nice solid portion out of it. Um, would be my guess. Mad Lads are another good example, like you mentioned, they ten X, but you got couple grand in pith you got like five grand in dim um you got the you're about to get the wormhole airdrop which a lot of people are speculating it's gonna be one of the bigger airdrops ever so definitely we're seeing this narrative of like you hold these blue chip nfts and you get airdrops especially if you're interacting with the protocol whether it be like you know getting some badge on discord or something of that nature um so yeah like at the end of the day i I don't think you can disagree like your point Santi that uh, NFTs are the highest beta and then apps and then the ecosystem token. Like, I think it's very hard to disagree with that. I think that's pretty much factual. And then, you know, you add on that layer of if you have call it eight figs or more, like you're probably not able to allocate as well to NFTs and maybe not even to apps. And then as you go down that scale and have lower amounts of money, you can play around a little bit more in some of these uh, more liquid, lower, lower volume pairs and, and NFTs. So yeah, I, you know, I think it depends on the person. So Matt, my, 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 my lizard a... brain is like, I don't think of NFTs as investments. This is sort of my philosophy. Oh, wow. That's an interesting take. I like, I, I know they are here's, but I'm a collector. Yeah. When I collect things, I, I've never sold an NFT. I've only sold one. Yeah. Actually. Well, two board apes that I got gifted. Cause I never, I never meant that I got gifted board apes and I sold them. And the second one was also an NFT that I got gifted. And the team that gifted it to me, it was an NFT island thing. Someone from the community wanted to buy this bla- this uh, island. And I was like, I'm 
it feels weird to sell something that I got as a gift, but they, they were okay. They were like, you should sell it to this guy. I was like, all right, but I don't, um, you just become, there's too much emotional cachet to these things. Like when I collect things, I'm like, I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I think there's two different strategies here. Like, well, let's say you, I don't know. I don't think you ended up, you ended up doing that levered bet on soul Santi, where you're going to lever up and buy some Solana NFT, but like, that's an investment that right. You're not sure. In that case, like tensorians. Yeah. Like punks too. Like I, the I, want, I, I, I wanted to collect these things, but I haven't sold them. Yeah. I think there's two different ways. Like there's three purchases you can make of an NFT in my mind. There's sweeping the floor. That's a, that's an investment. There's buying a grail. But by the way, imagine, imagine, imagine anyone like just jumps into this pod, jumps in minute, whatever, and listens to this thing. Like you're sweeping a floor. Like, wait, but I think, but I, yeah, but it's no different than like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's similar to um, it's similar. Uh, Blockworks anyway, just added. Uh, we got a new board member, um, and uh, he was the CEO of Sotheby's, and uh, is is now on the board of Blockworks. Great guy named Tad. And um, we, I had lunch with him yesterday, and he was telling me he's like, "Do you know the four assets that outperformed the debasement of the dollar over the last 15, 20 and years?" Wine and all this right? art. Yeah, yeah, but um. I don't know. It was actually a very interesting conversation about like in an infinite world, what becomes valuable and it's finite things. And, um, and Isn't I think so. Anyways, assets are like ERC 20. <laughs> no, but like, I think that it's no different than buying watches, right? Like if you go buy, if you go buy, a, let's say a Patek, for example, or you go buy something like you either, yeah. you should probably either get the new, like the, almost the cheapest Patek, so that you can get into the market. You should buy a Grail Patek. That's really nice. If you think that like for, let's say you're doing it for investing. If you're just getting a Patek for the investing purposes, you should either get a Grail Patek or you should sweep the floor of Pateks. But if you're getting a Patek for yourself, like you should buy the Patek that you- Oh, the goddamn Patek that you like. Love. You're going to buy a Calatrava because- That you love the most and that you will never sell. And I think it's the same for NFTs. So like, let's say you're going to go buy a Pudgy today. You either sleep, sweep the floor Let's say you're buying the, a pudgy for an investment. You either sweep the floor or you buy a grail. Nothing nothing in between. But if you're buying a pudgy to have as your pudgy for the next 20 years, buy get the pudgy that you love the most. Hopefully it's a pudgy that is also a grail and you can also afford and it doesn't encompass a big part of your portfolio. Yeah. So, so that you never have to sell. See, I think there's a lot of the best advice is I think real estate investors are like really good in the sense of like the best. You'll hear them say, You'll never lose money in real estate if you don't have to sell. Um, and you can just be incredibly patient. Yeah. And and you can afford to also buy when others are in a in a tight spot. And I think it's generally true. Like the problem with these NFTs is like just people should be, and I'm saying this like it's just common sense, but they're they can be highly liquid. And you know, you can look at while we are talking about good collections in this current market. Zoom out and look at the prior nine months of certain collections, and it doesn't look too pretty for Azuki's. It's actually like someone had a really good tweet about this uh, this week that I saw. It's like uh, I think it was actually Mike. Uh, yeah, it, was Mike. Yeah. it was Pudgies and um, um, the, some of the Solana collections have really performed exceptionally well. Everything else, Azuki's, um, Board Apes, um, and some of the other. Uh, here we go. Was uh, they've uh, haven't uh, had a similar fate, but not to be like 
you know, Monday morning quarterback, but doesn't it kind of feel like an obvious, like an obvious thing in the sense, like when you were, if you take six months ago, like the people that you really respect in crypto, the people who are like deeply crypto native that you think are intelligent, like no one's talking about Azuki's, right? Nobody's, nobody's talking about um, board apes, you know, it was my right? uh, like, disagree. Uh, yeah, uh, look, so, some people had Azuki's. I think they're really, they, they actually kind of screwed it up with, uh, the second collection that they launched yeah. was like a total botch. I think it was one of those things that they could have controlled. They just, but Bored Apes, for instance, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I think Bored Apes is just different category. It's just a respect. I think it, I, like what's, what's ripping in, in NFTs right now, the collections that deeply crypto native people respect. It's the same reason why bad kids are ripping. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah bad like, kids yeah. are like the, I would say bad kids for, is to Cosmos. What Matt lets is to Solana to right. crypto punks are to Ethereum. Right, Matt. You could go, go a step step further with the pudgies too. Like their brand outside of crypto has become really well respected. Like my girlfriend randomly gets their Instagram reels that have ten million views on them. They're selling mm-hmm. pudgies in WalMarts. Like they've achieved this different level of brand that I'm not sure really any other company in crypto has succeeded in. Like maybe yeah. Coinbase. Yeah, Yuga Labs raised all this money, didn't do... By the way, there's also something to talk about here. Yuga Labs is interesting developments um, in terms of kind of what they've yeah. done recently. But like Pudgies did what Yuga tried to do with a fraction of the budget, which is incredibly impressive, right? Yeah, look at this. They have 1.3 million followers on Instagram. Th- this one's crazy. They have fifth, almost 15 billion Giphy views or GIF, however you pronounce it. Um, which is cool. Matt, if you had... Uh, I'm going to make up a number here. If you had hundred K and you wanted, and you were super bullish, um, I'm trying not to pick on anyone. Let's say you're a super bullish Ethereum. You're like, you gig along Ethereum, whatever. Are you buying ETH spot? Are you levering up and buying ETH or are you, um, or are you buying like some ETH collection? We'll use Pudgies here. Cause it's been ripping. I'm probably long rollups. So like nothing on Ethereum or Ethereum. I'm probably long like OP, ARB, um, probably mostly OP and just sitting on it for like, depending on the time frame. but for a six month time frame, call it 12 month time frame. Like, I think that that's how I would get my beta exposure to Ethereum through L2s, um, specifically maybe OP. Mm-hmm. But I think pudgies are a good bet. You know, if you're talking about 100K and you're spending 60 of it on an NFT, that's it's a very large portion to be in, in one item. Um, especially, but like, I, I don't think you can go wrong there, but yeah, like at the end of the day, if I'm bullish in the ecosystem, like I'm going for beta, like I'm probably not longing yeah. the ecosystem token. I'm sure I'll have a good amount of it, but, um, on a shorter time frame, like something that I'm not holding for the rest of my life, something that I'm planning on, you know, selling in six months, 12 months, whatever, like I'm definitely, you know, looking for, mm-hmm. for more beta, whether it be through NFTs or through rollups slash apps, doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, for Ethereum specifically, definitely rollups. The long L2 is, uh, one I've heard from multiple people and in terms of the ratio of like, if you if you believe in Ethereum, well, like um, some like ARB, uh, Arbitrum, uh, like the, the ratio of how an L2 should trade relative to an L1 probably grows is uh, an opinion that I've heard from uh, some folks. And I generally agree with that. And I'm biased, of course, because that's how I actually express my um, exposure to Ethereum. Like I certainly have ETH, but um you know, by virtue of investments in L2s and other like middleware infrastructure of, um, is how I generally think it's like 
not too far out on the risk spectrum. Like you'd certainly have to be opinionated on a particular L2. You could have a basket of them. But as a whole, I think um, like if Ethereum does well, L2s do better, I think, as a basket. Uh, they just have to because, um, you know, and, and or like with Eigen in the mix, like I feel like, you know, Eigen uh, is like the saving grace for Ethereum in many ways, like especially this cycle with like liquid restaking and ABS and all that stuff. Like it doesn't, if Eigen doesn't work, then I'm more bearish on ETH. So if you're, and so by virtue of that, I think you want to have exposure to the thing that's pulling ETH this cycle, which I think is, I mean, you can talk about an ETF, but it's, Eigen is, plays a big, and L2s play, roll-ups play a huge part in that. So I'm just thinking of the catalyst that would drive the L2. And the same way that like DeFi was a big drive of Ethereum and interest in Ethereum as like the first killer use case back then. Um, but it feels like, DeFi, you kind of had to, was a little bit less sustainable in terms of the whole, you know, yield farming um, kind of wave. Whereas the L2s are like far more sustainable, I think, because they'll see the more usage they'll, you know, and and I think that's probably a better, like I, I would feel more comfortable this cycle holding some like an L2 token for longer and maybe not even rotate back to ETH. I mean, I think you always, I mean, I think if it's a growing the ETH stack at some point, like you, you want to think in ETH terms, but uh, I would feel more comfortable holding longer term an L2 token or something like Eigen versus a D, uh, random like a DeFi project. What's the over under on Eigen FDV at launch? 30. I said 30. Yeah. Three yeah. handle, baby. Yeah. I said I think, 30 I think in the so. chat today. How, how long it stays there? Probably longer than Starkware. Did you invest in Eigen, Santi? I passed in the one billion round. I passed in one is, Let's go. <laughs> that was uh, last year. Yeah, yeah. I, With Calvin? Just when we had them on the pod, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. Well, can't um, catch them all. Can't catch them all. Matt, do you, um, or actually both of you guys, when you are long something, like let's say, okay, so Matt, you think that this L2 trade is going to work out. Will you just go kind of spread across like your two or three favorite L2s or will you, uh, will you, will you pick one? Like, or let's say it's um, next gen blockchains, like, or whatever you want to call this bucket of like a uh, SUI and move. Like, are you just like, I don't know, I've got a grand, I'll put 500 in SUI, 500 in Aptus, or are you picking one or yeah, I'm picking one. I mean, I spend 24-7 in crypto. I'm supposed to have opinions on what's better tech, what's more in the narrative. So, like, diversification amongst the basket isn't really something I'm interested in. Um, I think that I have the ability to, like, pick, and I'm wrong a lot, but, like, I have the ability to, with a thesis, go in and say, I think that this one's the one that's going to outperform. Um, yep. And then, you know, sometimes I'm wrong. But at the end of the day, as long as I went in with a thesis, and if the thesis is proved incorrect, and I and I close out that position when that happens it's still a win in my book blockworksresearch.com there's your plug go get a sub folks prices go up march 18th um yeah yuga labs interesting stuff this week so they uh they both acquired moonbirds is that the name proof moonbirds um santi you're muted so moon moonbirds and then they let their um they let their ceo daniel go and one of their co-founders step back in any any thoughts on this santi any thoughts yeah, it's coming to roasting. Uh, I don't know what Yuga's endgame is at this point. Mike and 
get the get the balance sheet of moon and uh launch a token for it i think there's a lesson in there of like raising too much money in theory sounds nice in practice i think makes you do dumb shit i think they have one more shot you know other side if it actually is a really cool game world ecosystem then you know you could actually still has a chance at at coming back in the narrative but i think that's kind of their final shot look i hope it works there's just too many people that would probably be affected if it doesn't and you never want to see a you remember like uh the the company i'm thinking of in web2 is uh, magic leap you remember them yeah They're like of course a, yeah the the there's, virtual there's kind of still around but they, they're they all hype there is a ton of money they consistently raise a bunch of money but they haven't delivered and then um you know just a lot of money that got burned yeah um but like pudgies i saw just bringing back the pudgies pudgies can, i mean i don't know how far they are but the video that they shared it was like uh in december right of like the world that they wanted yeah. the game i mean they're doing this with like they only raise like a million bucks that's so what I, i'm saying yeah like i'm struggling to understand how you guys like you can't i guess i've heard it from many founders is constant like there's there's a popular uh phrase among like builders which is you throwing 10 more engineers at a problem is not necessarily going to solve the problem and sometimes like yes you need more resources to hire more people but i've seen time and time again many teams like get bloated um you know hire bd marketing do all these things i'm like like whereas i've seen i heard it from uh seb from zapper he's like our best engineer has 10x the amount of output than like Mm -hmm. some of the other engineers so go find that 10x engineer and i don't know maybe pudgies has just been lucky but those guys just seem to ship um but hey i don't have a full insight into what's going on in yuga maybe they'll you know blow our minds uh you know with what they're doing and they just haven't released it. So I want to be cautious and, you know, caveat everything that I'm saying, just, I, I don't have like insight, but it sounds like there's more going on with pudgies for a fraction of a Yuga and the resources that they have. So maybe there's something in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Blockworks bootstrap for the first five years, mm-hmm. right? It, yeah. it, it makes you more, more money, more problems. Right. And it like when startups raise too much money, I think they basically lose their core focus and like never really understand what they're, who their user is and what their product, how their product is differentiated in the market. Um, well, I, throw money. This is a good transition because we want to talk about airdrops, and I want to ask you a question, or both of you guys. Do you think that most teams in crypto understand who their customer is? You told me that was a bad question when I asked Keone that yesterday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, now wait, wait a minute. So you're sharing private. It's not kosher, man. All right. All right. Not kosher. Not kosher. I in, mean, that con- in that context, it was like. I mean, I'm just ragging on myself. I asked, about- I asked a question you, yesterday to Keone and Sandy goes, bad question. Uh, uh, <laughs> you said, who, who's your customer? Devs or users? For an L1, I think it was like a mad kind of question. I'm more thinking of like dApps. A, a da- an L1, your customer is a dev. A, an app, your customer is a user. That's my like. Think okay. Take crypto out of it. Who for think of think of like AWS. Like, who's the customer of AWS? Squarespace. Who's the customer of Squarespace? A user. Yeah, you know, I I you like know. understand. But let's go back to the question that I asked initially. Uh, <laughs> do you think the projects really understand their customer? 
And does it the does an airdrop introduce noise? Because a lot of this is just incentivized. There's two. There's t- like it depends what you're trying to optimize for, though. Um, the airdrop an airdrop is a marketing expense, right, for a company. Um, but it's a marketing expense to serve what purpose, right? So I think a lot of people think about a marketing expense as a way to just pull users in, just like as a way to pull people into your product. But so far, historically in crypto, the best way to pull someone into your product is, and to get someone into your ecosystem is number go up technology, right? It has nothing to do with your, usually in like web two land, you're marketing your technology and then that pulls people into your product. In crypto land, it's number go up technology then pulls people in. So like the customer of an airdrop could be the traders, which causes number go up, which then causes developers to build. Does that make sense? I feel like it's not just a marketing expense. It's also got this component of an attempt at regulatory arbitrage as far as like truly decentralizing ownership of your protocol. Um, When I think of customer in crypto, it's a little weird because I think the only way that a crypto protocol really gets a brand moat and stay power is through like proprietary order flow. Um, So transactions that are being routed to this protocol through, you know, uh, a user interface or something of that nature. And I don't think airdrops really help you get, you know, proprietary order flow or exclusive order flow. So at the end of the day, I don't think that you know, those two things are super connected and no, I definitely don't think most, most protocols know who's using their, using their application. Um, but I think it'd be very difficult to get a good sense. Like we have a sense of what kind of users on crypto Twitter, but we don't have a sense of who's doing all of the stablecoin transfers on Tron. And we don't have a sense of, uh, or at least I don't of a lot of different aspects of who crypto users really are. sort of a necessary thing. I think um, airdrops are going to continue to happen. I think teams, it's sort of a table stakes, but um, perhaps what would be wise is to not, not give out air, all, the entire airdrop allocation at once and reserve a lot of it down the road to be opportunistic, strategic, because you get to understand the customer better. Like simple things like Jupiter, right? Uh, or Blur, like you have camp, a certain rounds as you go, right? You want to sustain trading activity and interest. Like you have a constant drip of airdrops um, to keep up the KPIs that you're optimizing for. Whereas other teams just kind of give out all the, you know, airdrop uh, at once. And it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's not probably wise to do that. I feel like it hasn't worked so well. Like I'm thinking of Vertex as a good example of a protocol who had, you know, different epochs and rounds of giving out their token and the second it turns off, all of a sudden, you know, volume, or at least a large portion of volume leaves and they successfully, you know, incentivized a group, a significant group of traders to then have some brand loyalty and use their UI, use their UX, use their protocol. But I'm not even sure that that, that has proven to be a worthwhile endeavor as far as the amount of money that these protocols are giving out versus the number of users that they're onboarding. Well, that's the other thing. So if you're Vertex, do you just, what's the answer? Not even introduce an airdrop? I think the airdrop was a good, good idea. Like it, it did bring some users. It was just an expensive way of bringing some users. What do you think, Santi? I don't know. I mean, it's a difficult 
you can't make generalizations, right? I mean, you could look yeah. at Uni, and it was forced its hand because Sushi tried to vampire attack it, but Uni became Uni at a different time, right? I mean, there was just a lot of these things. Now everyone expects a token and points, and so it's like, all right, well, I think like, it is difficult. Like you were talking about Athena, like are people expecting a token? Most likely. There have been projects that have gotten away by just saying, hint, hint, wink, wink, there's a token coming at some point, but you know, two years in, they haven't released a token. I don't know, man. I think it's a lot of these discussions are difficult because we have like a hundred thousand users on chain less. No, I do I think, like, if you believe that like, we're going to get the millions of users, like, I don't know, just build a good product and have points ish and maybe build loyalty. I, I don't know. Like, like something like vertex, like if you're a per protocol, if P, if you allow people to like do swaps, have like meaningful utility, then I don't think you need an airdrop. I don't think you should rush it. Um, if you feel that like you're being outcompeted by someone that has an airdrop, you know, it's tricky. Ultimately, Sushi didn't deliver on the product as much as Uni has. And so now you can look at the both tokens and that's a very clear reflection. The market's telling you, his, it's like the market is like a voting machine in the near term, waiting machine in the long term. I tend to think like the really good teams that are excellent product builders should have conviction in the product that they're building that is just vastly superior and they can copy that on the margin. It is open source, whatever. Um, but I wouldn't rush into an airdrop or a token, even in this market. And I appreciate everyone's thinking now because, you know, prices are up and it's a good time to launch. I wonder if, what what's the Ben Graham quote, Santi, that you just said? Short run, the market's a voting machine. Well, the market's a run, voting machine in the near weighing, term. It's a weighing machine in the long term. So you want to be a really heavy program. Crypto does this weird thing. The, th the thought there, I think, is like short term, it's basically just based on like what people like. Long term, it's based on like the value that accrues to something in the cash flow that, that it spits off. But in crypto, crypto almost like delay extends the time horizon for the voting machine component because of culture and cults, I would say. Like the... Bitcoin is the ultimate meme coin. It's a it's yeah, like memes and like adding culture into the market and adding like cults into brands basically extends the time horizon for something to be a for the market to be a voting machine as opposed to a, a weighing machine. I don't know, that's just an interesting idea. Um yeah. markets stopped being very uh rational, not just in crypto. Uh, long time ago. <laughs> like really long yeah. time ago. <laughs> there was this, there was this good chart I saw about like we are moving to a dopamine economy. It made me think uh, of it. No. I'll try to find it. I'll, I'll find it. No one's time. thinking about like what JPAL is doing. Everyone's looking at Nvidia earnings. <laughs> See if the market's going to be sustained. You know, uh, it's so nice. Yeah. Um, interesting so, times. Oh, this is it. Here, let me show you that we can wrap on this. Everything has moved their slow traditional culture to fast modern culture to dopamine culture. It used to be play a sport, then it moved to watch a sport, then it moved to gamble on a sport. Newspaper went from newspapers to multimedia to clickbait. Went from film and TV to video to TikTok. Went from albums to tracks to TikTok. Went from views on a gallery wall to viewing on a phone to scrolling on a phone. Handwritten letters to voice, email memo to short text. Courtship and marriage to sexual freedom to swipe on an app. And the the category that's missing from this is markets. And I think markets have moved from 
Uh, actually, if you look at like markets a long time ago is d- dividends, right? Like you didn't really buy a stock for a number go up. You bought it for the dividend. You look at the dividends. I mean, you of bought like, it go up too. Come on, man. No, I mean, if you look at like, um, who, the, who, who would have fucking bought a stock if you didn't want it to go up? Like you div- bought, you became, if you wanted to be a shareholder in Carnegie or like in the Gilded Age, like 1870s, like Carnegie, Rockefeller and stuff, like there wasn't really a, necessarily a stock market. Um, but you look at the railroad mania, dude, the tulip mania, like animal spirits have been around for a while, man. It's just, no, of course, every, every industry starts markets are markets. The the, the problem is most people over intellectualized markets. They're highly psychological. Investing is not like a, it is a mathematical financial thing, but it's ultimately, if you don't understand psychology, good luck. Like seriously, good luck. And in a present values, all you need to know about like, you know, how things should trade. And building greater margin of safety, but you're still speculating. Like it's still, can other people understand, you know, and, you know, sometimes, you know, also the, I'll end with this, the other keys, what is it? Um, great quote, which is the market could stay uh, irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And so that's why you never want to short in crypto. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Pulls I think the art. I think the argument now is that it's not that there wasn't always people who wanted to get rich quick. It's that now that's the the norm. Like, you know, whether that dopamine culture has led to a society where everyone is in the same boat of, I will never be able to afford a house. I will never be able to do this unless I get rich quick. So I feel like the dopamine culture as it relates to investing has is kind of like a valid uh, progression. It's uh, it's also the age at which people participate in the markets has gone down, right? Old yeah. markets used to be stale, pale, male, like old white dudes, basically. Um, who stale, had, pale, male. Yeah, stale, pale, male, old white dudes on Wall Street. Um, and then it became the, you know, old, like maybe, you know, moms and dads who in the 90s when you had like e-brokerages like TD Ameritrade and stuff like that came online. And now anyone with a smartphone can become can become an investor. And as you yeah. go down in age, you also, yeah. and you get more digital, you, you get more dopamine obsessed. And, you know, you, you talk to an 18 year old, they're not interested in the 8% a year. Right. So, well, with that, folks, I got to drop. I'm late for a call. Good place to wrap. All right, boys. Great chat. Good Matt, thanks for joining yeah, us. It was appreciate fun. you joining. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate y'all. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Don't forget to claim your free wormhole NFT exclusive to Empire listeners. Hit the link in the description of today's episode and fill out the form to claim your unique wormhole NFT today.